All right, let's pray before we get started. Father in heaven, uh, we just thank you. Lord God, uh, you are seated on your throne watching us, Lord, and we pray that you be delighted in what you see this morning. Father, I, I pray that uh, your words come through the speaker, Lord, that he just be a vessel used by you to bring glory to yourself, oh Lord God. I pray for all the ears listening, Lord, that you give them ears to hear and prepare our minds, Father, to receive all that you have for us. Lord, so that uh, that adoration that we sang about, Lord, would be even greater on the way out, all for your glory and all for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been studying the attributes of the great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we learned about his aseity, that is, God is self-existent and self-sufficient. God does not need anything or anyone outside of himself. Nothing caused God to be. God simply always was. And he himself actually is the cause of all other things' existence. Uh, God doesn't need anything to remain in existence. He doesn't need any help to perform anything that his perfect will desires to accomplish. In that sense, God is truly independent, and everything else is dependent on God. We also learned that God is incapable of change. He's immutable. He is absolute perfection in all his attributes. God was always perfect and will always be perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is merciful. God is gracious. We could all, we could continue on, and he'll never cease being any of those things perfectly. He doesn't change. God does not improve. All right? He can't. He's already perfect. Okay? Um, his... He did not attain perfection, right? God did not grow into perfection. That would mean he changed, and then he could not claim immutability. The God we read about in Genesis 1, who had already existed be, from eternity past, if you can even understand that, okay? That's the same God we read about in Revelation. He has not changed. When someone is perfect, there's only one direction to go, Right? All right. Um, so if he were not perfect, he, if he was immutable, he would cease to be perfect and cease to be the God that he reveals to us in his word. And just uh, as eternality is incomprehensible to us, so is God's infinitude. We are finite beings trying to understand an infinite God. It's like an ant trying to understand a human being and even beyond that. So when we think of God's attributes, we have to think about all of them in their infinity. Even the, the communicable attributes of God, they're infinite. God is holy, and he's infinite holy. God is righteous, he's infinitely righteous. It's beyond what we're even able to understand, okay? That's why we just, God is just simply to be adored. He's beyond our comprehension, Okay, our God is infinitely holy and, and infinitely holy and perfect in his moral attributes. So, and that's our God beyond our understanding. So I've been tasked to speak to you about three incommunicable attributes of God. There are attributes that, uh, of God that we can't reflect. But before I get into them, there are a couple of things I think we should keep in mind. First of all, 
when we're speaking of God, we are referring to a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These attributes are possessed by all three persons of that Godhead. Secondly, the attributes are permanent for all eternity. Otherwise, God would be changeable. Uh, Thirdly, the attributes of God function together and are connected and inseparable. Um, So his righteousness is eternal and immutable at the same time. It's like when you bake a cake, you put all the ingredients in there. After the cake is baked, you can't separate them. Right? So you can't separate God's um, uh, attributes. Fourthly, uh, remember that these attributes themselves are not God, but they're ways for us to describe God, describe who he is, what he is like, based on what he revealed to us about himself in the scriptures. And I cannot stress enough the importance of studying the attributes of God. Um, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. That is so true. What we understand or misunderstand about God will affect our lifestyle. It'll affect our worship. It'll affect our evangelism, our prayer, our worldview. It will affect everything about us. Okay? And it's not only a worthwhile study, and it's a rewarding study also, but it's a vital part of our walk with Christ. A misunderstanding of God, when, when we don't do this study, we, we're going to fill our own imaginations about what God is like and, who he is, and, and what he's like and what he dislikes, what he thinks is right, what he thinks is wrong. We end up creating a God in our own imaginations. We end up worshiping an idol. Right? Um, we have to make sure we are very familiar with the God as he describes himself in his word. Um, also, a study on the attributes of God, we want to make sure, even though everything kind of starts out as sort of academic, it should not remain that way. We don't want to just stop at knowing about God. We want to know God. John 17, 3 says, this is Jesus praying, and this is eternal life that they may know They is the disciples, that's us, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's no. Then it's that's an experiential, intimate, relational knowledge of God, not just an academic knowledge of God. And we see that men in the Bible wanted more of God. They wanted to know God. Um, In Philippians 3, Paul, he considers all other things as loss and rubbish compared to the value of knowing Christ. Compared to the value of that relationship with Christ, knowing him um, intimately. In Exodus 33, 13, we read Moses' prayer. He says, now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways that I might know thee so that I may find favor in thy sight. These passages indicate more than just knowing about God. And I pray that we have that the same sentiments, the same feelings, the same experience that these men, that Moses had, that Paul had, and that Jesus prayed about. Because God is the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most awesome, magnificent being that has ever and ever will exist, period. And I'm convinced that the more we study God, the more we get to know him, the greater our love for him will be. You won't be able to help it.
Our delight in his commands will grow. Our love for his law will increase. Our obedience to him will be a joy and a delight to us. All right? A yoke that is easy. Get to know our God. So that being said, I've been asked to speak to you this morning about the, I call them the O's of God's attributes. Okay? Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. You know, I guess we could have called them the Cheerios too. But we'll start with omniscience. Omniscience is a fancy word for saying that God knows everything. That's what omni means, all. So 1 John 3.20 tells us that God knows all things. Really, does anything else have to be said after that? He knows all things. In Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, we read, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The greatest astronomers um, known to man don't know how many stars there are there. Okay? The best they can do is give an estimate, and that estimate changes every time some new information or they throw a new telescope up there. Uh, Listen to this. In October 2016, deep field images of the Hubble Space Telescope suggested that there are about 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe, or about 10 times more galaxies than previously suggested. You see what I mean? According, and this is according to the journal Nature. In an email with Live Science lead author Christopher Consolisi, I think that's his name, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Nottingham, the United Kingdom, said there are about 100 million stars in the average galaxy. So 100 million times 2 trillion. I don't know what that number is called. Okay, and it'll change with the next telescope or whatever we have. Okay, but yet our God not only knows the number of the stars, he has named all of them. That's pretty awesome. The true and living God knows everything. His knowledge is exhaustive. All right. He knows everything about everything to the minutest detail. God has always known everything. He did not learn or obtain knowledge and understanding. He always had it. In fact, God can't learn anything. There is nothing for him to learn. He already knows everything that is knowable. Um, There are no secrets with God. There are no mysteries from God. There are no surprises with God. He knows everything. He is omniscient. God knows everything about us. He knows everything about us individually and in that exhaustive detail. Psalm 44, 21 tells us that God knows the secrets of the heart. In the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus was not entrusting himself to many who seemed to believe in him. Uh, we read in John chapter 2. Now, when, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not need anyone to advise him. He didn't need to read somebody's biography or character analysis. The text says that he did not need anyone to bear witness to him about man. He already knew. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when uh, seeking a replacement for Saul, 
And as Samuel starts looking for the potential replacement um, amongst David's older brothers, the Lord tells Samuel that he, he looks at the heart. God sees what others can't. Okay, He knows what's inside of us. This is an aspect of his omniscience. God is fully aware of all our secret thoughts, our emotions, our desires. He knows all our material side, our mind, emotions, our will. And he knows it with perfect accuracy, down to the finest detail. Those things we hide from others and are so reluctant to reveal. Those thoughts and attitudes that would bring us shame and reproach. If others knew about them, God already knows them. God knows them all. His knowledge of us is penetrating. And if we're honest, that's pretty scary. At least it was to me. Okay. We can pretend and put up a pretty good face you know, around other men, but we can't do that before God. God even knows all the sins that we forgot about, right? Some of them we want to forget, but God knows them. He knows all those things. Okay, in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus um, forgave the sins of the paralytic, you remember that? The scribes there were thinking to themselves that Jesus was blaspheming because he, he forgave. They believed only God could do that. Um, well, in, in 9, 4, in Matthew, it says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your heart? Jesus knew their thoughts, and Jesus knows ours as well. And acknowledging this actually brings terror, because we know that not all our thoughts are right before God. However, this could be quite comforting too, right? When our motives are misinterpreted, when we are misunderstood, when we need to do well, but things crash anyway, we can take some comfort in knowing that God knows the truth about us, if in fact our motives are righteous. And if they are not, in his graciousness, in his great mercy, he will reveal that to us as well, so that we could turn and repent. David understood that. I think when David wrote, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way, he's beseeching the Lord to either confirm his motives that he thinks are real, are, are, are good and proper, or reveal them if they are hurtful, so he could confess them and turn from them. So David understood that God knows his thoughts, even if David may, be, may have deceived himself about them. God knows our hearts. And he will lead us to truth, even regarding our own hearts. The creator God who spoke the world into existence is, of course, completely knowledgeable about his creation. We can read all about this in his answer to Job. Um, in the end of Job, uh, chapters 37 to 41, um, he, he's questioning Job about things Job knows nothing about. It's a lot about nature there. Okay, Job doesn't know anything about him, but God does. God knows everything about everything. There is no subject that he is not exhaustively familiar with, whether it be science, biology, psychology, astronomy, car, sports, history, etc. You name it, he knows it. And just because he didn't decide to give it to us in his word, it doesn't mean he doesn't know it. God is all-knowing whether he decided to reveal it to us or not. He knows every nuance of everything. Nothing is beyond his perfect understanding. And he knows it immediately. He's not forgotten anything. And he would, you know, if we would ask God, God, uh, you know, 
how many stars are there? He doesn't have to say, say oh, let, me, oh, let me think about that. How many did I make? No, it's instantaneous. God knows what's in our hearts instantaneously. It's always before him. He doesn't have to look at notes. He doesn't have to run a, a rewind of our lives. It's all before him immediately. Isaiah 40, 13 says, Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he take counsel, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? God does not need counsel from anyone. The answer to this is no one. There is nothing we can tell God that he doesn't already know and understand to the minutest detail without error, ever. And even when we pray to him, he knows our prayers before we even ask. He knows our needs before we even ask him. It's in Matthew chapter 6. Our omniscient God is also fully aware of the future. And this is also an aspect of his sovereignty, but, you know, that'll be for another day. But it means that nothing that has ever come to pass or ever will come to pass catches God by surprise. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, we read, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Countless prophecies have come to pass about Israel, about the nations surrounding Israel, and about the Messiah. God foretells them because he knows them beforehand because he's omniscient. God even knows the things that could have happened but didn't. In Matthew 11, Jesus admonishes the cities where he performed miracles but they didn't repent. Okay, And this is what we see in that passage. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He knows what they would have done if, he, if those things were there. He goes on, nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, they're not off the hook, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus speaks of what could or would have happened in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. The all-knowing God knows all the schemes of the devil, and he knows how to defeat them all. He knows all the trials and tribulations we will face and how to endure them all. He knows just what we need to build our endurance. He knows just what we need to grow in maturity. He knows our true needs even when we don't. He knows the best way to accomplish his perfect will. And because of that, we can place our full trust in his guidance, in his counsel, and his loving care. We can joyfully obey him amidst oppression, trial, tribulation, persecution, whatever, because he's the all-knowing God. Amen? Omnipotence. Um, Second O. So not only is God omniscient, he knows all things. Scripture teaches us that he is omnipotent. 
Uh, omnipotent describes God's unlimited ability and authority to bring into existence or cause to happen whatever he wills. It's a fancy word for almighty or all-powerful. And one way um, that God reveals this attribute to us is through the names he gives himself in Scripture, um, specifically El Shaddai, uh, which is translated God Almighty. In Genesis 17, 1, he says, Now Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, this is the Lord saying to Abram, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's how God describes himself. And just like his other attributes, God's power is infinite. His power has no limit or boundary. His power is self-existent within him. His ability to do whatever his perfect will desires and his authority to do so, his sovereignty, are aspects of his eternal divine nature. God did not become powerful. His power and authority was not granted to him. No one gave him authority. He has always been all-powerful from eternity past, and it will not change. His power and authority will remain infinite for all eternity. Romans chapter 1 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. His power is not only eternal, but it's manifested through his creation. Isaiah chapter 40 says, uh, verse 28 says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Here we see that God's power does not wane. Our God does not get tired or fatigued. He's totally other than what we are, and he's totally other than anything else in his creation. We get tired. Energy gets depleted, and we need rest to recharge. It's not so with God. God did not rest on the seventh day because he was tired. He, rest, he stopped his creation activity on the seventh day because it was done on the sixth day. I don't, you know... Right, uh, I've heard that, you know, God didn't need the rest. Um, we also learn from Isaiah that God gives power to those who lack. In fact, all power is from God. All human power and ability ultimately belongs to God. And whatever we have, whatever we can do, it's because God gives us the strength to do it. In Psalm 18, uh, verses 32 to 39... Uh, it tells us that it is God who girds him with strength. That's what the psalmist says there. And the psalmist in Psalm 46 says that God is our refuge and he's our strength, a very present help in trouble. In Isaiah 41, the Lord says, Do not fear, for I am with you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is also the source of all power and strength. And his power and strength is irresistible. God's purposes cannot be resisted. They cannot be thwarted. They cannot be undermined. He will accomplish all that he sets out to do in accordance with his great power. And nothing and nobody can stop him. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, In Jer- uh, 
This is Jeremiah's prayer here. It says, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Can anything really stop the one who spoke the universe into existence? It's like, let there be, and it was. That was it. Okay? I don't think so. Scripture also records so many manifestations of God's infinite power. It's just impossible not to notice. The worldwide flood, that's a manifestation of God's power and his authority. So were the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many amazing military victories has God uh, given Israel? Some when Israel was severely outnumbered. Um, Sometimes they were unarmed. Sometimes Israel didn't even have to fight. Right? And they got a military victory. God parted seas. He stopped storms. He redirected the sun's shadow. Um, There is nothing in creation that can hinder God from doing whatever he wants. He's not, even, he's not bound by the creation's uh, laws and principles that he put into place. And God's power is infinite. It's so far beyond our capabilities that we simply cannot understand it. Um, fortunately, sometimes we forget about his power. Our all-powerful God is immutable. He doesn't change, so he's always all-powerful. This means that the power he exercised thousands of years ago are still his. He does not get weak like we did, and his character does not change. The God that intervened in mighty ways in the lives of his people back then is still also able to intervene in the lives of his people today in the same exact way if he chooses to do so. God can still move mountains, and he can still part seas. God can still give his people strength to overcome incredibly difficult situations, to fight off the strongest of enemies, even to fight for his people and to keep every single one of his promises. I think it's sad that so many don't believe that the God we read about in the the Old Testament performed miraculous signs that he somehow no longer operates that way among his people, that somehow he's changed, that he's no longer intimately involved with, with with his people in that same manner that he would demonstrate his awesome power. I think in our modern culture with all of our technology and so many conveniences, I think it's our ability to recognize God's work and God's power is diminished. It's hidden behind all that stuff. We think we're doing it. If God is not all powerful, is not God still powerful enough And of the same character to work the way he did with Israel and his people in the Old Testament. Why Why pray for him for healing? Why pray for daily bread? Why let your request be known to God if he might not have the ability or the desire to do anything about it? You see how what we think about God and what we believe about God, that's just an example of how we'll change our prayer life. I think one of the greatest manifestations of power is his is in his redeeming sinful men through Jesus Christ. The whole redemption story from the birth of Christ to a, from, a, to a, from a virgin of a virgin to the resurrection on the third day are all demonstrations of God's power. You know, the, the angel told Mary that nothing is impossible with God. And how true is that? That God would take corrupt, vile sinners and make them clean, make them righteous, 
that he would quicken a dead soul and make it alive. Not simply wanting to do it, he did it. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The answer is no. An Ethiopian can't change his skin and a leopard can't change his spots. And we can't make ourselves righteous. We can't change that. It's impossible for the leopard to do those things. But God, because of his infinite power, can. He is able, and he did. Uh, Regarding this salvation, Paul prayed that the Ephesian believers have their eyes opened so that they will know know what? The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead. Wow. And those who belong to him can rest in his power. In John chapter 10, verse 28 says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to them, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We rest actually in the power of God. He displayed his power in our salvation and continues to show it in our security. Our salvation is secure because no one could take us out of God's hand. No one is powerful enough to do that. Our salvation is secure because God's power is irresistible, infinite, and faithful. So is there any reason why we cannot have peace amidst the storms of life? in the face of persecution and oppression, against the threat of financial ruin or famine or destruction? No. Not if we remember, not if we keep in mind that God is all-powerful and trustworthy. Jesus showed his power over disease. He showed his power over the devil. He showed his power over death. God has proven worthy of all all our trust. What is it that uh, Martin Luther wrote? He said that mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never, never failing. We just continue to do, the thing, to do things God's way, to live God's way, and don't allow our circumstances to move us off course, and we'll see his mighty hand at work. No matter the situation, our God is capable. Okay, He's the almighty God. Do not forget that. A lot of times in Scripture, the, the doxologies... Um, Reflect on, on God's power and authority. Um, at the end of June, uh, June, and of Jude, it says this: Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. God is going to keep us there. That's awesome. God is also, um, he's omniscient, omnipotent, and he's omnipresent. Omnipresence describes that attribute of God that enables him to be present everywhere at the same time. Once again, remember God is nothing like us. We don't try to put the properties of creation on the creator. 
Uh, we're physical beings, and uh, we're limited by space and time. God is spirit. He has no such limits on him. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Of course he does. The Lord was, and here the Lord was actually condemning uh, the false prophets. Um, And after hearing that, they should be scared. But Psalm 139, we read this this morning, but it's an incredible passage. 139, I'll just read verses 7 through 12. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the, remote, in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as a day. Darkness and light are alike to you. What a passage. So, of course, yeah, God is in heaven. Uh, that's where his throne is. Psalm 123 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Here, uh, Sheol is a Hebrew term for the place of the dead, a place where the dead have their abode. Uh, God is there too. One can set sail and go to the farthest part of the sea in its great vastness. Guess what? God is there. If the psalmist goes to the furthest eastern part of the earth, that's what he might be talking about, the wings of dawn. You know, the sun rises and it eats east. God is there. And if he sets sail to the furthest part of the sea, which if he's in Israel, that would be the Mediterranean Sea, west of them. And he goes the furthest part there, right? Guess what? God is there. Jonah found out that you can't run, you know, you can't get away from God by boat. Um, The writer here is not telling us that God is following him. It's a statement of God's immensity that puts him everywhere at the same time. He's not, you know, with us when we're in our homes praying, where two or three are gathered, right? And then he comes and joins us to church here. He's not at the Jones' house praying when they're praying and then goes to the Ramos' house and joins them when they, you know, when they pray. Um, He's with all people at all times. He's omnipresent. We cannot run from God. We cannot hide from God. God is never far away from us. Proverbs 15.3 says that the eyes of Yahweh are in every place watching the evil and the good. And that's uh, one of the errors of many of the ancient uh, peoples. They believed that gods, their gods, had like um, limited jurisdictions and uh, and geographies. So the Philistines, they had the God of the Philistines, and he was wherever the Philistines lived. And the Amorites had their God, and wherever the uh, Amorites lived, that their God was limited. That was his territory, his jurisdiction. Uh, that is not true with Yahweh. Okay? The whole creation is his. Okay? And all under his jurisdiction, and he encompasses all of it. So just think about God's omnipresence. Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, whoever we're with, God is there and he's watching. 
Every sin one ever commits is done right there before the holy God. Now that ought to make you cringe. Um, The criminal looks up to make sure no one is around before committing a crime. He has forgotten that the true God is in every place watching. Sometimes we think that God is like the, the, the troopers on the Taconic, right? If we don't see any troopers, we figure they're not around. And somehow our car figures they're not around because it decides to go on its own 10 or 15 miles an hour faster. We see a trooper, we slow down. Well, it's not like that with God. He's everywhere. When we're watching something on television that we should not be watching or surfing the internet and stumble across sites we just don't belong in, God not only knows because he's omniscient, but according to this, he's right there with us. Things we would never watch or do in front of our own mothers, we end up doing right in front of a holy God. Let that sink in a little bit. Now, to some, this might sound like God is stalking us, and it's a negative thing. But I think it's a good thing. How many times have we sinned because we figured no one will find out? No one is around. But if we realize, if we remember, keep to mind that someone is around, namely that someone is the holy God, we would probably not have committed most of those sins. Hopefully none of them. Okay? Just keeping mindful that God is right there. It's when we forget that God is right there with us that stumbling occurs. It's when we have a misconstrued view of God, um, even if it's only for, lasts for 45 seconds, Uh, A misconstrued view that he is not everywhere present. We make ourselves vulnerable and will fall to temptation. Another comforting aspect about God's omnipresence is that we're never alone. Isn't it funny that we're so timid about doing things when we're by ourselves? Just take witnessing, okay? How many of us have been intimidated into not witnessing when we're by ourselves? We want to say something, and we figure, oh, you kind of, you know, you, you know, you should say something, and you chicken out by yourself. Okay, you add a companion, and all of a sudden, you're a lot more confident, and you're willing to share. Okay, we have something better than a human companion. We have the Almighty, all-knowing God, and He's right there with us. You know, even in, in to Daniel's friends in a fiery furnace. Okay. Um, It doesn't say exactly who that was, but someone was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar recognized him as a uh, some kind of divine being, right? But this could have been the second person of the Trinity. Some commentators said, but even if it wasn't, our God says that He's everywhere present all the time. So that means He's always with us. Jesus said for the. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And at the end of the, um, the Great Commission, he told his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God's omnipresent. God cannot not be there. Okay? I put it that way. Um, the true God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. To us who know the Lord, who have eternal life in Christ who have had our sins forgiven and are clothed in his righteousness, these are a comfort. They're a source of peace. 
a, a source of joy, something we delight in, even among, among when, when the worst of circumstances, even when we're in the, in the furnace. We know we can trust in him who is able. But to those who do not know him or do not know him accurately, the right way, these attributes bring terror as the reality that all their sin is known and performed before the almighty God who can cast their souls into hell. To those, I have one thing to say. It doesn't have to stay that way. The God who is almighty, the God who is righteous, the God who is just, all-knowing, is also merciful and gracious and loving. How does that happen? Well, he demonstrated his great power and all those things in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Messiah. Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfectly sinless life. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. His purpose was only to do the will of God. This Jesus was crucified, and dying on the cross, he voluntarily took the penalty for our sin on himself. The death we deserved, he got in our place. However, because he was sinless, death could not hold him. And just like he said he would, he rose again on the third day after being crucified, proving that his sacrificing of himself on the cross was accepted by the, the just God for the payment of our sin. And all this was in accordance with the scriptures. All of this was foretold by the almighty, all-knowing God, the God worthy of our trust. And he said, if you confess these things with your mouth and believe them in your heart, you too will be saved. And you too will be saved from the judgment that is definitely going to come. But it's not just being saved from the judgment. Okay? Uh, we, we confess Jesus. Put your trust in Christ and what he did. You're not only going to avoid the judgment, but you're going to enter into a genuine relationship, a genuine fellowship, and it's forever, with that most magnificent, wonderful, awesome, beautiful being that ever existed. You are coming into the household of God. God will call you his son. God will change you. God will clothe you with his righteousness. God will delight in you as he sees his son abiding in you and and his son's righteousness clothing you. That's what God sees. That's what also you're getting. You'll be able to have a real relationship with the almighty, wonderful God. Tomorrow is not promised. Put your trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just, uh, we praise you, we adore you, dear God. Lord God, um, there are, there are no words to describe your beauty, to perfectly describe your, your beauty, your perfections, your majesty. Lord, our, our, our words are weak and incomplete. Our minds, probably because our minds really can't fathom the infiniteness of your holiness and righteousness and all of your perfections, O oh Lord God. Father, yet we ask that you, 
accept our, our weak attempts at trying to understand you and look upon you. And we pray that you accept our worship and, and praise, Father, that you would delight in them, almost like an earthly father delights in his two-year-old trying to please him and help him. Lord God, we just thank you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, and we pray that uh, you continue to work in us, that we would exalt you and praise you, not just in words, not just in this room, but in our, as we go about in our lives, in our every thought, in our every word, and in all the work we do. May it be for you, in Jesus' name, amen.